at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. And today I have a great pleasure to have with me Dr. Meredith Young. She is an associate professor and associate director of research in the Institute of Health Sciences Education at McGill University. So first of all, welcome to the show, but also congratulations on your role as an associate director of research in the Institute. Welcome Meredith. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for the congratulations as well. I'm excited to be here, nervous, but excited. Well, I'm also excited to talk to you. I have a ton of questions that I want to know about your story. I'm going to start with usually what I like to start this show, which is kind of digging a little bit on, on your growing up years. And I want to know about the environment you grew up, like what did it look like? What were you curious about? Who were your heroes at that time? If you kind of start from there, that would be great. Such a small, such a small question to start with. Um, so I'm... Canadian. I grew up in Canada, but we moved around a fair bit. So I lived in Hamilton, in St. John's, Newfoundland, in Ottawa. Um, I did my middle school and high school in a small town in Ontario called Fergus. When we moved there, there was a rocking 2,500 people there. <laughs> so um, a lot of time there. I'm the middle of three kids. So I have a big brother and a little sister. Um and now I don't know where I'm supposed to go from here. Like, uh, what were you curious about? Like being in the middle of the, your two, your brother and your sister, who, did you have a hero out of the two or what was the relationship and how they, did they inspire you to become curious about anything? That's a good question. So there's seven years from top to bottom. So I'm three oh. years from my brother and four years from my sister. Um, and if we were all in a room, I don't think anybody would have picked us out as siblings. Um, we don't really look a whole ton alike. And uh, there's definitely things that we share in common. We're all grew up playing a lot of sports, grew up with a lot of different varied interests. And remarkably, actually, all three of us have PhDs now, but in three oh. completely different faculties. Okay. So my brother's, uh, my brother's a sociologist by training. Uh, and he stayed in academia. Um, I'm out of basic science, so I have neuroscience and cognition degree. And then my little sister did a really cool mixed program, which combined history, kind of media studies, um, and kind of current culture as well. And she did not stay in academia, but she's got a really awesome job as well. Oh, that's fascinating. How was that um, kind of mindset, if I want to call it, about the three of you becoming so academically inclined? Is your parents, what happened? Um, I, I think my parents have a lot to do with it. So my parents are really, really fascinating people. Um, they had lots of different jobs and professions in their life, but the thing that really was consistent for them was their moral compass. So every decision they made about employment, every decision about where we lived was all very centered on, on their sense of what was right and their sense of how they could contribute to their various communities. Mm -hmm. Um, so my mom, had a master's degree in um, anthropology and archaeology and taught at the university level for a little bit. Um, but then my, my dad's job required a lot of travel. So she stayed home with us for quite a while. 
and then went back to school, became a teacher. And she said she spent most of her life working towards the people who needed her most. So she kind of worked towards from curriculum to middle school to primary school and ended up as a special needs instructor. My dad, um, again, had a lot of jobs, but probably the one that was most formative was he was a political strategist. Wow. So he worked a lot in politics, um, but always very socially minded. So he would only work with and for people that he agreed with their policy choices, which is also why we moved around a lot because we would move kind of where he was working, but he would work in the Yukon for five or six months to help with an election process there, come back home for a little while, go again. So there was a great encouragement of learning, a great encouragement of debate, mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of debate. Uh, like if one of my siblings and I were fighting, we would have to flip at the dinner table and argue the other person's point, which often led to us accidentally confessing what we did wrong. Um, really? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of a lot of debate, a lot of learning, a lot of um, challenging of ideas was just kind of di dinner table conversations. So that probably contributed a fair bit. And both of my parents actually either have part of a PhD or it was at some point in their trajectory, but none of us knew that until we were adults. So we kind of did our own stumbling academic pathways and then it became an, oh, by the way, did you ever know <laughs> that we were gonna do that too? And for whatever reason, again, moral compass or life situation, it wasn't possible for them. So how is it that most of your family, like political sciences, sociology, archeology, span media studies, and you ended up doing a PhD in basic sciences? What's the story there? <laughs> an excellent story well it's a confusing and wandering story probably just like everybody else right we kind of stumble backwards into a career in in health professions education it's not something any three-year-old wakes up and decides to do mm -hmm. um but I finished high school I played a ton of sports mostly tried to stay out of trouble and I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up um I didn't have a strong sense because also when you're in a small town, you don't get a whole lot of exposure to all the different kinds of jobs that exist in the world. You kind of get firefighter, police officer, teacher, banker. I knew other jobs existed because my parents held them, but you don't really have a strong platter to choose from. So when, <laughs> when it was time to move to university, my parents essentially said, I don't, we don't care what you do, but you can't stay here, right? Like out, out, out you go. You can't oh. stay in a small town. It's time to get out and see things. So I ended up going to McMaster for my undergrad because it was one of the few universities you only had to apply into the pro or into the faculty. You didn't have to choose a program. Okay. So you apply into arts or yeah. into science, and then they let you kind of figure out what you want to be and apply to specialize later on. Okay. So I went into McMaster for science. Again, wasn't too sure what I wanted to do. So stayed in kind of biology, molecular biology stream. Mm. By the time I got to my third or fourth year, I realized that was not for me. <laughs> and I was very stubborn and knew that if I was three quarters of the way through it, I had to finish it. Yeah. And the way that I kept myself interested, would it, this was before the electronic course calendars, right? So you would get the big book and you'd flip through and I would essentially find the most interesting course and I would add it to my course load. So by the time I finished my four-year degree, I had taken courses on art appreciation for science majors. I'd taken a jazz performance course. I don't sing or play an instrument. I'd taken 
cultural history courses. I took a pop culture course that went really poorly, but it was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Realized to know about pop culture that has a lot of class associated with it. So if you don't, if you don't have a lot of that experience, it makes it really hard to participate in that conversation. And so by the time I'd finished my degree, I essentially had a bucket load of other course credits because that's how I kept myself interested in school enough to finish my degree. So when I was getting ready to graduate, I got a call from a guidance counselor and they're like, you need to come in. Oh, I was like, oh no, they oh. found me out. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I went in and they had said that they were looking at my transcript and I had had, I had enough credits to graduate with a double degree. Oh, it was a good thing then. It was a good thing. Yeah. Okay. So I got really nervous, but it was apparently a good thing. But then, so we sat and tried to figure out amongst jazz performance and art appreciation <laughs> and plagues and people, that was a good one. What, what on earth could generate kind right. of a double degree situation. So it turned out I was two courses short from graduating with a degree in psych because I'd taken a bunch of interesting psychology courses as well. Mm. So I finished my first degree, started working full time and taking some night classes to kind of get this bonus extra degree because I stacked so many credits. Um, And that's when I learned about cognition. That's when I met Jeff Norman and Lee Brooks. Um, And that's one of those inflection moments. They convinced me to come to grad school and to study some of the stuff that we were talking about. And then the rest, as they say, is history. Oh, wow. Well, now it makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense to me in many ways. In, in one way, like it's your area. And mm-hmm. how did you land it? Because I was going to be my next, next question. Like, how did you arrive to medical education? You said okay. you, you don't wake up one day and say, I want to be a medical education researcher. Yeah. <laughs> so that makes sense. But the other part that makes sense is also how I have come to know you as a person and a person who thinks and have such a variety of perspectives and understandings and interests. So thank you for, for sharing that. But before we go into your journey in medical education, I want to just speak a little bit more about your, your family. You said you moved a lot in Canada. Mm-hmm. How did that impact you in terms of your thinking about the world and life in general? What, what memories you have of that? That's a good question. And I'd love to, I would love to hear you answer the same question as well at some point. Um, I think that the easiest answer to that is when someone says, where are you from? I don't know how to answer. Oh, okay. Um, So I often say I'm Canadian or I'll say I moved around a lot when I was little. Um, Because really the city that I lived the longest in before I came to Montreal was Hamilton, right? And that was where I went to university. Yeah. House I've lived in longest is the one that I live in now in Montreal. Right. So that that geographic sense of home is a bit odd for me. Right. Because home is where your people are. Yeah. Right. So to say where you're from or where's home, well, home is where my people are. Right. So it's in that sense, it's easy because it it's an easy answer because it sounds flippant, but it always is a little stumbly when somebody says, where are you from? But I think it makes you able to talk to people because you're not always, you're not, you don't have the friends from kindergarten, right? Like if you move in kindergarten and again in grade three and then again in grade five and then again in grade seven, those people don't carry with you, right? So you, you rebuild networks, especially 
pre-internet, right? You're not having pen pals in grade two all that frequently. Um, so I guess it's gotten me interested in other people and interested in their conversations and their stories. Um, but I, I remember the moves, but they were also just part of life. Okay. Became normal for you at some point. Well, I, the family went all together. So. Right. right. But I totally um, con- res- resonate with you because I'm about to get to the same amount of time I've been in Canada to the same amount of time I stay in my home country. Mm. I'm seeing that question, like when you say where I'm coming from, and I have the same kind of, what am I going to say when I'm about to be the same amount of time in both countries? Yeah. Going to switch? I don't know, but I appreciate the thought, and I, I think it's a very thoughtful answer for that. So now, let's move into your curiosities, and you are in medical education, but I want to know, because you have little kids, and people always are impacted and influenced by them. Like, how have your children influenced or changed your ability to remain curious these days? What do they add to your curiosity? They ask amazing questions. Mm. And so we have, a, we have an any question is allowed policy. Okay. Um, especially at dinner, which leads to fascinating dinner conversations. <laughs> But I want, I, I had a house that I could talk to people. Um, and I, I want them to have a sense that if they're curious about something or if they don't understand, it's not taboo to ask. It's not that they should have heard it the first time or they should have understood it the first time. And they're growing up multilingual, right? We're in a, they go to school in one language and our language at home is another one. So they sometimes just have really interesting observations as they navigate bilingualism, right? Because things are expressed differently or understood differently. Or they do funny things like um, shut the lights uh-huh. because it's an it's not inaccurate, but it's not a perfect translation. So they have these moments where they're trying to navigate two worlds in two different languages and it trips them up. Uh-huh. So we end up having really interesting conversations about why why is that a saying? Why does this make sense? Does it uh-huh. translate? Uh, like. We also have very open conversations about sensitive topics, but I, I appreciate their questions and they help me see the world in a different way sometimes. Um, So I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to ever see them lose that. Yeah. And I imagine also the, the fact that they help you see that transition between two languages also applies to how different disciplines we have in, in our field. Yeah. And they, they absolutely also keep me humble, right? Like if they're like, Hey, can you write me a note to my teacher to say the dentist is coming? I have to get them to check my translation. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They're they're keeping me humble. That's for sure. Okay. So you have so many curiosities or interests, like from what you just said, the number of courses that you take, you took, how do you manage to, or is it part of your interest to stay focused on a particular topic or are you keeping a range of interest in your work as a scientist in medical education? How do you balance that out, the multiple interests versus the staying focused? And which are those interests as a researcher now? So I think, I think it's always a tension um, between the, the being a, a specialized expert and being an interesting generalist. So when I first came in the field, how I met um, Jeff Norman and Lee Brooks and Kevin Even and all those guys was I was working 
um, in a clinical context as a clinical trial coordinator. And part of my job was to screen potential patients. It was in a, a psychiatric unit for drug trial because essentially they could get treatment faster through that route. And I have feelings about that that can be discussed at another time. But I, I was having such a hard time screening people, right? People would tell me what was going on and I couldn't take their complicated life stories and say, okay, you fit in this bucket, mm. right? Because is it bad luck? Is it real, right? Like not everything they're telling you is reflective of an accurate external world. Um, and I just happened to be taking a course where they talked about how some theories of categorization, so how we take apples that are all different colors and somehow learn that they're all apples okay. can be used as an analogy for medical diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, well, that I can't do that. <laughs> that's, that's the thing I can't do. So I asked for a chance to talk with the instructors of the course. And we started talking about kind of the ambiguity inherent in the psychiatric context and, and the struggles I was having at, at this kind of post undergrad job. Mm-hmm. And they were telling me about the theories that they did and that the research that we did. So my PhD project specifically was looking at how people learn to interpret ambiguous information in the context of psychiatric cases. So it was a, I'm really horrible at this and I want to better understand because it can't just, not that I'm the most skilled in the world, but it can't just be a phenomenon that's linked to me. And then to be having these conversations saying there's a theory and there's a way of studying this. And also this idea that nobody knows Uh was so cool. Like, what do you mean? Nobody knows? Like, this is like fundamental stuff. How do we not know that? That's so fascinating. Uh And because I wasn't deeply trained in psych, it was kind of one of these circumstantial, if we cobble political science and cultural studies together, we can, you know, take a couple stats courses and we'll call it a psych degree. The learning curve during the PhD was incredible, right? Like whole new theories, whole new concepts, whole new ideas. So I came into that space just absolutely drowning in new information and new questions. And it was so fun. And I know I will get back to your question, I promise. But through that, I also got all these chances, just the way my program was structured to, to work with lots of different people and to try different kinds of science within kind of the psych and neuroscience realm. Um, and also get some good methods training because my committee took good care of me in terms of getting me ready for the job market. Mm-hmm. Um, that when I talk about my research now, if I talk about it in themes, the lowest number I can get down to is three. <laughs> Oh, okay. (laughs) I can get down to three topics that I have what you could maybe think of as a program of research. So one is the clinical reasoning stuff, which is where I started looking at cognitive models and theories in terms of how we can better understand how individuals reason and make decisions. Then I have a a body of work that I share with Christina uh, Saint-Ange around issues of assessment and validity and kind of how people understand and make decisions around there. And then I have a little kind of fun third bucket around um, kind of thinking through what makes good science in a weird interdisciplinary space and how teams with lots of different people on them think through and solve research problems. Mm -hmm. So if I look by topic, the lowest number of topics I can get down to is three. Um, But I, I, I was lucky to be part of a fellowship a few years ago where one of the exercises for me was to try to figure out why those three things and what's common across them and what that fellowship with a lot of feedback um, helped me realize is I'm, I'm really interested in, in 
generally how we solve problems, mm -hmm. but even more so what we think makes a good solution and kind of the under the assumptions that underpin our notions of good, right? So it was um, a good study of this character or that character. Is a good reasoner look like this or look that? If good assessment data looks like X or looks Y. So it's really this idea that the there's often competing notions of good. Mm -hmm. And I, I really love a good paradox. That's kind of what I keep gravitating to is, is when ideas clash or when concepts clash or when explanations don't line up for me. Right. I, I really love that. And, and I take a lot of time to understand a new idea, um, mostly because I get stuck on these spaces where things clash. But that's what's really fun for me. Okay. So what, what is your take on, on these two advices that sometimes people have, which is to just pick a topic, just stay there and you focus and go deep versus you should have a range of interest. Where do you see it and why? <laughs> for me or for everybody else? For, um, <laughs> for me, I, I think the idea of a focused program of research with incredible deep expertise is amazing. And it's, a, it's an amazing contribution to the field. Um, I just can't seem to do it okay. <laughs> because I think, but I have lots of layers of answers to this as normal. Anybody who asked me a question, my famous answer is it depends um, because I think there is a lot of, there's a lot of care um, given to the advice of one deep program, right? You get a reputation. That's how you get invitations. You build a name, right? You are so in person, so-and-so who studies such and such. And that's really important in a really competitive space where people need to compete for conference invitations. They need to compete for journal space. They need to make a name. Um, and, I, and I think that works for some people and some people love their one thing and can do it and do it brilliantly. I think for people who accidentally end up with more than one program of work, um, we, can, we can make ourselves look like that when we need to, right? Because your CV is a collection of data points and you have some control over the narrative that goes with that, right? So it took me X many years and a lot of really hard feedback to say, Meredith, you're not actually a clinical reasoning researcher, right? There's something underneath that, that clinical reasoning right now is the space that you're finding interesting problems. But that doesn't mean in 10 years, you're only ever gonna be able to do that. So that was incredibly like scary, um, but also kind of freeing uh -huh. to say that I can have a space in the community or I can, contribute interesting stuff without necessarily having a keyword. Yeah, I um, love that analogy of you see these data points, but then you are in charge of crafting the narrative behind those mm -hmm. data points. That's fascinating. And it's important for people like us, right? Because sometimes that narrative goes to a department chair where my famous narrative is my papers to grant ratio is amazing. I am the cheapest scholar you have. <laughs> and I can train a ton of people and everything, right? Yeah. But then the narrative, if you're trying to go up for something that you need a program of research, then it's a very different narrative, right? And you're trying to look at the structures of the kinds of problems you find interesting. And right. is there a way that you can explain how you fit and how you contribute? Right. So the narrative also changes by audience, right? Yeah. And our field is particularly unique on that side because we have so many audiences. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Makes sense. So speaking about the uniqueness of our field, mm -hmm. I want to know if you had ideas about being a researcher when you join medical education as a field did you have ideas about becoming a researcher in this field that you realized were different from from what you had in mind that surprised you either positively or negatively 
It's an excellent question. So the thing to remember is I completed my PhD in 2009, which means I started in, what does that make it, 2004? Mm -hmm. So the community was different, right? And it was smaller. I think one of the amazing things is to watch how big it's gotten and how varied it's gotten, right? Like in 2004 to 2009, people were still making arguments that qualitative research is legitimate, right? As opposed to not only is it legitimate, we've got amazing things like rich pictures, right? Like these amazing, not in our classic rule book, but phenomenal approaches to do good science. So the, and coming out of kind of the neuroscience cognition space, that's a really competitive space, right? Like 85% of people with those PhDs leave academia and that's not all because they want to, right? So it's, 15% find themselves staying in academia. So it's hugely competitive. Um, So there's worries about being scooped, right? And if so-and-so gets such and such funding, that means I'm never going to make it, right? Because it's just so, 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 so hyper-competitive. And then you, you, you wander over here and you've got people cheering for you and you get funding that they didn't get and you've got these amazingly generous, brilliant people who will sit down with you and just talk, right? Whether it's talking about mentorship, whether it's, I I don't know how many conversations I've had with Lara Varpio about, just explain that to me one more time. (laughs) I think I got it. She's like, you don't got it, try again. I'm like, okay, again, again, again. But this idea that we can learn from each other and we can network horizontally and build our own communities and mix and learn from each other. I don't know if it's because we're not in a discovery oriented science, right? So you're not quite as worried about being scooped because even if you're working on the same thing, you're doing it differently. Yes. Um, But it's, I didn't expect it to be a space of so many friendships, I guess. Oh, and that's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. I can, I can appreciate that as well, coming from engineering for sure. What would be an unexpected opportunity that you took that became a defining moment in your career? All of them. I don't, I've, and my sister particularly can tell you this, I've never had a life plan. (laughs) (laughs) I have very rarely had a concrete plan. And even coming into academia, I said, I'll do this so long as it's fun, right? And there's definitely moments where it's not fun and definitely moments where I had to work really hard to find the fun. Um, But the whole, like I stumbled in here because of a meeting with a grad counselor who told me I should (laughs) pick up the second degree. I took a job because I had to pay my rent and I was horrible at it. And then somehow I ended up in a hallway conversation that got me into a graduate program. Like there's just so many. And then the people I've met along the way and the, opportunities I've had are incredible but they they're all they're all a thousand inflections right and it's hard to say it's hard to say this is the one right because there's so many people I've met so many phenomenal opportunities I came into MedEd when there were jobs that had research as a big part of them and so it's I'm I'm stumbling because I'm trying to think of like yeah yeah that was it and it's like we just got back from Bayfield and I had a wonderful thousand inflection moments meeting new people who happen to be expert in the problem I'm having a hard time understanding right so it's it just feels like there's so many and and every time I get to learn something new it feels like another one 
Yeah, and you make a really good point that I haven't thought before, which is the idea when you don't have that, let's call it issue or problem of having a plan, like I need to have a plan always. <laughs> but when you don't have the frustration of my sister that things work out, even if I don't have a plan. <laughs> that's how I feel about my brother <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's a good point because when you don't have that constraining or influencing the way you behave then then it's easier to see opportunities everywhere right yeah. so that's, yeah. that's a very good point and sometimes I say yes to way too many things and well, then I have to figure out a way to get them all done but then I also sometimes the, the yes you don't expect to be an inflection ends up being right. one, so yeah that's very cool so before we go into what I call the small things in life so yeah ready for those. I want to know what's for Meta you think 2022, especially now you're becoming the Associate Director of Research for the Institute and your own research. What, what I'm, what's for you? Having, I'm having a hard time picking a, a, an area of focus oh, to okay. answer that question. You mean for research-wise or for the, the new you can pick either, like any of those two that you think is going to be prominent this year that you really are looking forward to, to achieve or to do? So the new job is really cool because it, it's about thinking creatively about how to support people to do amazing research, right? So it's like, how do I look around the people in my unit, see everybody doing amazing things, and then somehow make them able to be even more amazing. So that's really fun and creative and um engaging okay. so that'll be really fun and I have no idea what it's going to look like because the job hasn't existed before but I'm also really excited about that cool. um and slowly building a team that will mm -hmm. push back and debate with me and come up with great ideas so that's really fun research wise there's a lot of really great stuff in the pipeline um some stuff that's made me slow down and learn new methods <laughs> and stretch my brain a bit so it'll be really nice to see that in all honesty, I found the pandemic really challenging um, for my mental space. Mm. Um, just between older family members and younger kids and trying to respect the idea of essential services through the pandemic, which for me was the teaching and the supporting junior faculty and, and students. I found that the really fun, wacky part of my brain that comes up with new ideas has just been absconded right? It's busy planning and replanning because you're not allowed to look forward to anything in the time of COVID, right? Because you have to have six plans and maybe none of them will happen. So I found that, that that creative part of my brain has been a little quiet and that's okay. I know it'll come back. So I'm excited at the idea that it'll come back in 2022, maybe in 2023. And that's <laughs> well, like we've got lots of st great stuff going on, but that real fun of like, smashing ideas together or listening to a podcast and being like well that sounds like that thing over there and what if we talk it through it's I've missed it yeah and yeah I'm, I'm sure for many people has been the same and the idea of going back to conferences and listening to stuff in person mm -hmm. right so I appreciate so it okay for the last few minutes I like to ask a few like what I call the small things in life kind of questions so, I know that you did a camping trip with your kids because I follow you in Twitter last year. <laughs> so I want to know what became, because it was so fun to see the photos and we did this and now we, we're away, blah, blah, blah. And I'm away. What, what became memorable from, your, from, from that camping, camping trip with your children last summer? Um, so last summer we didn't have day camps, right? So they yeah. were 
they were with me for for almost eight weeks. So we decided to just turn it into adventure. So I would make them as tired as possible during the day and then work at night after they fell asleep. We did phenomenal things. So we went backcountry canoe camping. Um, we did uh, hiking camping. So just the three girls. And it's a very heavy pack when your co-campers are seven and nine. Um, but I think when they look back on it, they'll have a whole bucket of amazing memories, right? Swimming in lakes, um, feeling strong, right? Feeling uh -huh. different, like this isn't in my normal space and I'm gonna carry wood and paddle my own canoe. So they they had a great time. I was exhausted, <laughs> also had a great time. Um, but there is something, especially with the pandemic, because we're in a very urban environment in Montreal, just being away and, and not needing to think about it or monitor it quite so quickly. I think everybody felt pretty free last summer. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. What are your simple, simple pleasures? You know, a good cup of coffee goes a long way. <laughs> and you mix a good cup of coffee and a good book and nobody needing anything. That's the little kid part. Um, it's glorious. Yeah. I like being outside too. When did, you get, when did you get to do that? Like getting a cup of coffee, getting a book and seeing so that nobody can distract you did you get that often or uh, sabbatical <laughs> <laughs> not not often enough but I think that's also kind of where the I'll read pretty much anything fiction nonfiction, whether it's horrible or amazing so I think the the broad interests has carried through but yeah I don't get a hot cup of coffee and a good book by myself frequently enough okay So my next question is mostly inspired by how everybody kind of had to deal with sharing spaces during the pandemic. Like in my case, we had one office so we had to share it with my partner. And so when are you taking this? And then the way it was laid out, it was not how I like it or he liked it, blah, blah, blah. So if you could design and build a room of, on your own and just for you, what would it be like? What would it be like? So for the, I know the podcast people can't see us, but I think everybody I've ever had a meeting with in the last two years knows this is my kitchen. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> kitchen is my office, is my everything. So we have a really small house, a room all to my own. It would have glorious big windows. Okay. It would have an amazing reading chair mm -hmm. um, where you can put your feet up. Sure. Um, is it a workspace or any space? Any space. It's for you. Mm, can we put a hammock in there? That sounds funny. I, I was going to say hammock. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the windows would absolutely need to open. Maybe a patio door where you can listen to the rain. Okay. That's good. Uh, yeah. Nice. Nice, bright, what, open, cozy. What color would you paint it? I'm leaning towards something neutral because then I'd probably fill it with stuff. Maybe uh, a fireplace. Can we put a fireplace in there? Of course. It's Let's your... put a fireplace in there. Yeah. It's nice. Okay. Keep it in mind. <laughs> it might happen. Who knows? I had not anticipated. I've listened to a lot of these and trying to anticipate. I did not anticipate that one. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. Yeah. Final question. And probably you have heard this one before. If you hadn't become a scientist, what would you have chosen to become or do? Even though you have so many interests. So you have to pick one. <laughs> Um, I would probably, if, if my life had gone one of the ways I thought it would have gone a thousand inflections ago, 
I probably would like own a pub. Oh, like really? Coach kids sports. Yeah, that's probably where I would be. Sorry, you said pub and kids sports? Yeah. So, uh, well, you can't stay in the pub all the time. You got to get outside. And that I played a lot of orphan sports because okay. I was tall. So people were like, hey, why don't you come join the field hockey team? I was like, okay. It's not like anybody knew how to play field hockey, but I took up a lot of space. Uh -huh. So I played field hockey and rugby and in university, I was a competitive fencer. Um, yeah. See all these stories. So I, I would probably do something with getting people access to sports. And I would probably do something that looks like a pub. Huh. I look forward to see what it looked like. <laughs> oh, I haven't heard that one. <laughs> Okay, Mary, this was really enjoyable. Thank you very much for your time and participation. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you in another episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.